We'll be looking really at Genesis 17, 15 and following, continuing our series in Genesis. You may know that we just um, recently, in the last two weeks, Russell walked us through Genesis 17 as far as the clarifying and giving the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And this morning, I want to look at the continuation of that, if you will, sort of tying a bow on this really momentous chapter in the book of Genesis and, and, and kind of watershed chapter in the Bible. So let me read Genesis 17, 15 and following, and then we'll, after we're done with that, I'll, I'll pray. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be father, he shall father 12 princes, and I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins, That very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael's son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearing, that your spirit would be at work. We recognize that apart from your Holy Spirit at work, speaking into our hearts, that the words that come from my mouth, even the words that we read in this text, will just fall to the ground. But it is because your spirit attends to the word that he has superintended the writing of that we have much confidence that the word will not return void, but will do the work for which it's been sent forth. And we pray that it will this morning as we contemplate this speech that you've given to Abraham with regard to Sarai and her name and her posterity and the blessing you've given her. And with regard to Abraham's response to all of that in obedience that very day, we pray we'd understand your word and rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you have all heard the saying, you can do anything that you put your mind to. Children, if you watch the Disney Channel, which parents, I would recommend you start monitoring that. But if you do, you might have heard Walt Disney say it this way. This is Walt Disney. If you dream it, you can do it. We've all heard it. We've all heard it. When I was a kid, I loved the book, The Little Engine That Could. You guys remember that book? I think I can. I think I can. You guys know when he climbs the mountain. Anyway, you might know it. I loved it. Except here's the problem. I never became the point guard for the Los Angeles Lakers. Though I dreamed it. And though I thought I could do anything I put my mind to. The problem was I'm slow and uncoordinated. 
I'm tall and that's all. The Lord made me tall and able to read books. And those two things don't spell point guard for the Lakers. You know how it goes. We've all heard it. You can do anything. And we all know it's not true. We all know it's not true. There are just things that we cannot do. Some things are impossible to do. Here's something that's impossible for all of us that might surprise you. Being saved so that you can have eternal life and enter heaven, that's impossible. That that might be surprising to you. Being saved is impossible. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is impossible for you. There is no possibility. You already know that evangelism is hard. You know that. But what I'm saying is that believing in Jesus and convincing those who you love to believe in Jesus are both impossibilities. I'm sure that stokes your fire for evangelism. You can go out and share the gospel with you want all you want. You can be as convincing as you want to be, as winsome as you want to be, and it's impossible that anyone will come to faith in Jesus Christ through your doing that. In Matthew 19, 16 through 22, Jesus interacts with the rich young ruler. You guys might remember this passage. He asks Jesus, what good deed must be done to have eternal life. This man contends that he is a law keeper. He's he's like one of the good guys of society. Successful businessman, moral, kind, seeks the good of his neighbor. The kind of man of good repute. The sort of man you want to be around. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. What did the rich young ruler do? He left in sorrow, and then we're told this by Matthew, for he had many great possessions. Jesus was essentially saying this to the rich young ruler. You come to me with nothing in your hand. Your greatest desire must be for heaven, not for earthly gain. You must want me more than all your stuff. Take all your dreams, all your desires, all your possessions, and see me as greater than all of them. Forsake all of that and come follow me and you can have eternal life. You've heard it said other ways. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. If anyone wants to follow after me, he must hate his father and mother, his spouse, even his own life to follow me. Like a man in the field who found the pearl of great price and sold all that he had in order to gain that pearl, so you must forsake your life here and desire Jesus as your greatest treasure if you want to be with him in heaven. Now, does faith in Christ sound impossible? The bar was just too high for the rich young ruler. Then we hear this exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Listen to what they said. It's in Matthew 19, 23. You don't need to turn there, just listen. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, what's the level of difficulty? You ready? It is easier for a camel, you guys have seen camels, they're large, to go through the eye of a needle. That's a little, you guys seen the eye of a needle? I can't even get thread through the eye of a needle. Right? It's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, clearly then only poor people can be saved. That's not what they said. Here's what they said. Who then can be saved? Like, that guy is a good guy. 
If he can't be saved, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, now listen, with man, this is impossible. Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I don't know if you heard that. The disciples question, who then can be saved? What's Jesus' answer? His answer was not, well, easy peasy. Anyone who comes to me and asks. You just need to tell people the truth in a winsome manner, employ the right arguments, love them well, and they'll bend the knee to Christ. That's not what he says. Jesus' answer is this. With man, this is impossible. You guys understand what impossible means? M is a negation of possible. Not possible. Now, not maybe somewhat possible, impossible. But if you just raise your children right, then they'll have saving faith, right? No. That does not make it possible for them to have saving faith. You raising them right. But if your family member just finally hits rock bottom, then they'll be able to have faith, right? I hear that all the time. I'm waiting for him to hit rock bottom. I'm praying for him to hit rock bottom. Have you guys ever said that? Or <clears throat> So then they'll finally believe. <clears throat> I don't know why you're wishing ill for them. But that is not going to make them believe. It doesn't suddenly make it possible to believe. Still impossible. I, again, I'm going to come back. You know what that word means, right? It means you can't do it. We can unearth every natural power of man, if you will. We can do every good deed we can muster. We can bring to bear every good argument. And yet, with man, our salvation is not possible. Yet you probably think to yourself, it's impossible for Gavin Newsom to be saved, but maybe it's possible for Ben Shapiro to be saved. Now, why do I pick them? I'm sure you like Ben Shapiro. If you're from Bakersfield, most likely you prefer Ben Shapiro over Gavin Newsom. And you probably think Ben Shapiro's just a little closer to heaven than Gavin Newsom. Admit it. His politics are better. His moral um, convictions seem to be better. He hasn't in any way worked in such a way that you feel oppressed by his political leadership. He just seems like he's better. I hear arguments from Ben Shapiro sometimes and I think, my gosh, you're getting so close. I have never heard anything from Gavin Newsom where I thought, so close! Never. Yet, yet, I want you to hear this. This isn't a sliding scale of possibility. Ben Shapiro, by his own admission, is as far from eternal life as Gavin Newsom. It's equally impossible for both of them to be saved. Equally impossible for both of them to be saved. Your prayer lives may not reflect However, that you believe it is possible for God to save. See, I know some really good people who seem so close. And the rich young ruler seemed so close. But Jesus said it's impossible for him. It's impossible for him. But we cannot forget what Jesus said next. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. In other words, God's saving power alone can do what is impossible for man. The point here is not, it is, with God all things are impossible. If you want to win the Super Bowl, with God all things are possible. That's not the point. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about God's saving power his saving power alone can do what is impossible for man. Listen, I cannot give you 
the grace of faith and repentance that causes you to look to Christ and forsake the world. I can't do that. You can't gin that up in you. I can tell you the gospel. I can call on you to trust in Christ. But I cannot awaken you from spiritual death to new life in Christ. I cannot change your heart. I cannot coerce you into faith. You cannot do any of that for yourself either. It's impossible with man. Only God can save. But don't miss the point. I don't want you to miss it. God is mighty to save. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You ever stop and think about it? It's in Isaiah. It's in some songs, some better than others. But God is mighty to save. God is mighty to create the world. God is mighty to govern the world and sustain it. God is mighty to do miracles like parting the Red Sea. But hear this. God is mighty to save you and to save me. It's impossible that we would be saved otherwise. Our hearts are wicked and twisted and rebellious. We have our eyes set here on earthly goods. You all know it's true. When you hear the calls like in Luke 14, you have to forsake your family, your own life. If you want to follow me and be my disciple, you think, that's impossible. I can't do that. I don't even want to forsake lunch so that I can sit in a worship service a little longer. Let alone forsake my family. I have a hard time forsaking one day of the week to set it apart for the Lord. Set apart, you know, forsake everything for the Lord? Impossible. It is. It is. We are not righteous. No, not one. We are not seeking after God. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. You hear the emphasis there? We were dead. He made us alive. God is mighty to save us, and that truth reverberates through Genesis. I'm hammering this because I want you to understand this truth is reverberating through Genesis. From Genesis 3.15, across the pages of the rest of the Bible, you've heard that God's created, you heard that God provides and governs. Now from Genesis 3.15, from the fall of Adam and Eve, and the promise of God to save through the seed of the woman, through the rest of the Bible, what you keep hearing again and again and again is God is mighty to save. In Genesis, we see man rebel and plunge himself into death. And in spite of man's rebellion, God is willing, that's grace, and able, that's power, to save us. He is called El Shaddai. Two weeks ago, when Russell got us into Genesis 17, he pointed out that God names himself to Abram El Shaddai. Look at Genesis 17.1. Genesis 17.1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. I am the God who can do all things. I can do all my holy will. Everything God has decreed to do, he can and will do. None can thwart him. None. He is God Almighty. Now what's interesting is, we hear that, okay, God is all-powerful. How is God now going to exercise his power in the life of Abraham? That's one of the things we ought to stop and think about. He named himself El Shaddai. Why? That's an interesting name to pick. Why does he point out to Abraham, I'm God Almighty? Well, what's Abraham just been struggling with? God has made me promises for land and a seed, a multiplying offspring that blesses all the nations of the earth, and his wife is barren, and they're getting old, and there's enemies all around in the land. Why should I believe your promises to be good to me? And God comes in and says, I'm El Shaddai. I'm God Almighty. And listen to how God Almighty exercises his power. Look at verse 4. 
Behold, Genesis 17, 4, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. In other words, in Genesis 1.28, man's commanded to be exceedingly fruitful and multiply. And now God's saying, I'm going to do that. I commanded Adam to do it. You can't. I'm going to do it in you. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Friends, in summary, God is saying that the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord, is coming through you, Abraham, and he will save you, and he'll bless all the nations. He'll save you, he'll save your children after you, and he'll bless all the nations. And then Abraham is given a confirmation of this promise. God gave then to Abraham the sign of circumcision. Circumcision points to the cutting of Christ at the cross. And the saving power of God to apply that cross work to cleanse them internally. God is mighty, but this is not just a mere display of power. God is exercising his power in grace towards sinful creatures. Now, if you want more on circumcision, you can go to Russell's sermon last week. Here's the point I want to make. God Almighty intercedes with Abraham and says, my power is being exercised to save you and your children after you. And I'm going to give you a sign that points to a bloody cutting away that will cleanse you. Points you to the It's on the male member pointing you to the offspring who will come and who will suffer a bloody cutting on the cross for you and your sins so that you're cleansed and forgiven. I'm mighty to save. And this whole chapter, Genesis 17, is a kind of watershed moment in Genesis. We have God's covenant with Abraham clarified and signed But we have Abraham's name changed along with the covenant promises reiterated. And then we have, and that's why I'm driving you here, then we have Sarai's name changed with the covenant promises reiterated to her. Let's not miss this. For this kind of, if you will, ties a bow on this incredible chapter of God's saving intention and power. And I want you to see, if you will, that bow being tied in really five quick movements. They're going to come at you really quick. But five quick movements, all of which show that God is mighty to save. First, God changes Sarai's name. God changes Sarai's name. Here's the first movement. Look at Genesis 17, 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Okay. It's interesting because Sarai means princess. And Sarah means princess. Some scholars speculate about a possible extension of that. Princess to one people versus princess to the peoples. That may be true. As Abraham is the father of many nations. That may be true. It's a little difficult with the Hebrew here. Here's what we know. In both cases, it definitely means princess. Here's what we also know. God changes her name, and that's not incidental. He's just changed Abram's name. And there's a parallel being made between Abraham and Sarah. It's being made on purpose to point out that God is doing a new thing with them. He's changed their name. You Children, I've pointed this out to you before. You know that when you're first born... If you will, the first thing your parents give you is a name. They name you. So I see Carly. She hates to be pointed out, but I'm going to do it anyway. So Carly's there. Carly's parents named her Carly. So she grows up, and she hears this, these sounds. Have you guys ever stopped and just thought about the sounds? Carly. 
what, what the heck does that mean? I don't, it's her name. We know it's just these sounds we make with our mouth. And she grows up hearing those sounds and she goes, oh, that's me. That's talking about me. It's the first thing they give you. It's an identifier. You now know who you are. And she has a last name that tells her to what family she belongs. So she knows who she is and to what family she belongs. She knows about herself. And if you know her, then you hear the name and you suddenly picture a lot of characteristics. Right? Just, it just happens. You, you kind of get to know her by that name. Well, listen, that's what we give our kids. The Lord is now naming Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah with new names. So that something is marked about them distinct from their lives before. They are now the ones through whom God is going to work his saving promises. And so he renames them both. We see this, by the way, in baptism. What is baptism if not a naming ceremony? I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we're saying now, you're marked off as belonging to the Lord. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Walk with him. Be blameless before him. Trust in him. Rest in his grace. Live for him in accord with his law and not for yourself. Naming is not incidental here. It's incredibly important. And it's a parallel with Abraham and Sarah. Further, God blesses Sarah directly. Look at Genesis 17, 16. It's the second point. God blesses Sarah directly. Verse 16. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of people, shall come from her. Now that's the same blessing given to Abraham, isn't it? He'll become nations. Kings of people will come from him. But this is rare. It it, it ought to stop you in your tracks when you see the Lord directly bless a woman in this way. The Lord blesses the patriarchs. You'll see this kind of blessing on Abraham, on Isaac, and on Jacob. But seldom do we hear this kind of blessing given to a woman. Moses is trying to get your attention. The Holy Spirit's trying to get your attention. This is a watershed moment. Abraham and Sarah, in some ways, and we've shown you this already in the passages in Genesis, are like a new Adam and Eve. Eve's name was changed as well. You guys remember that? When the promise was given. The seed of the woman promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 is now coming through Abraham and Sarah. And we see the similar kind of language with the Virgin Mary. This reminds us of Mary and God blessing her. Listen to the scenes around Mary's pregnancy with Jesus. Because he's talking about Abraham and Sarah having Isaac. I want you to listen to the scene with Mary having Jesus. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read from Luke 1.26 and following. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. That's the one upon whom the Lord has shown grace. The Lord is with you. That is the great hope of man. That God would be with us. The Lord is with you. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Do you guys hear the blessing? From an angel of the Lord. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You would be too. Angels don't normally come to people. And give them blessings. And the angel said to her. Do not be afraid Mary. For you have found favor with God. God has chosen to be gracious to you. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country. I'm jumping down to verse 39. I want you to hear this again with Mary. Into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Elizabeth's her aunt. Zechariah and Elizabeth are the parents of John the Baptist. And Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist at this point. She enters the house. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does she say when the Holy Spirit, when God comes upon her? And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. I bring this up as a parallel to point out that the Lord is sending the Savior, the Christ, through Abraham and Sarah. He is God Almighty who is exercising his power to save them. It's not incidental that she gets a new name and is blessed along with Abraham. Third, Abraham responds with wonder and joy and faith. So look at Genesis 17, verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face. That's awe. You guys understand that? When God speaks to you and you fall on your face, there's a kind of awe that has struck him. And laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, I want you to note the four descriptions that are here of Abraham's response to all this. The four descriptions are, he fell on his face, he laughed, he said to himself. This is kind of an internal dialogue. You guys have those? Some people have internal dialogues. Some people just have external dialogues only, right? So you understand, but my wife is helping me learn how to have an internal dialogue and an inside voice, both of which I struggle with. So the Abraham fell on his faith, face and laughed and said to himself, He's going to ask a question. And then it says, and then Abraham prayed for Ishmael. What's happening here? What's happening? Abraham falling on his face and laughing and asking this question internally is not, don't you hear this? It is not Abraham lacking faith. It's not Abraham lacking faith. It might read that way to you. But that's not how it's intended to be read. This is Abraham being filled with awe and wonder, and wonder. He is on his face, prostrate before God because of his fear of God Almighty, his reverence for God. He is laughing, not out of doubt. Sarah will do that later, but in faith. In fact, we can see his reason for laughter. We can see his wonder in his internal dialogue. Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? This child is coming within a year. He's now 99. It's going to be born to him at a hundred. So we know the child is coming this next year. He knows that. And he's laughing about it. He's on his face in awe of God, laughing with wonder about this. You guys have done this, haven't you? God does something in your life that you know only God could do. You don't lack faith, you just start to laugh like, oh my gosh, only the Lord. You've been there, right? Only This would not happen apart from him. You find his divine sense of humor. Because you, you didn't really trust him as much as you should have at the time, and then he intervenes in some way, and when he intervenes in some way you didn't think was going to happen, you just grow in faith, And you laugh at God's faithfulness and, to some degree, your silliness in not trusting him. How marvelous this thing is to you. He's he's in wonder. He's marveling. Only the Lord could do this. By the way, this same kind of response reminds us of Mary as well. Now, Sarah will doubt and laugh in doubt. Zechariah doubts. Abraham here is laughing in faith. And Mary also responds with this kind of question of faith. Listen to Luke 1.31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? 
She wonders in her heart. She is joyful and stunned and marveling at the promise. She is not doubting there in contrast to Zechariah. She, note the parallel. How could this be since I'm a virgin that I'm going to give birth to the Messiah? How could this be since I'm 100 years old and my wife is 90 years old and we're barren that we're going to give birth to the promised son through whom the Messiah will come? How can that be? That's incredible. Listen to what Paul says about Abraham not doubting the Lord. In case you think to yourself, surely you're just reading the text the way you want to. Let me give you an authoritative opinion on Genesis 17 from the Apostle Paul. And if you can't believe him with regard to the Old Testament, then chuck out your Christianity and move along. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Listen to what he says. In hope, speaking of Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. Did you hear that? Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, did he doubt? No, he did not weaken in faith. No unbelief. This is still Paul. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Friends, even the prayer of Abraham for his son Ishmael is not a doubting of the promise God is making. Listen listen to what's happening. I believe that you're mighty to save. I believe that you will, even through us two elderly people with a barren wife, bring about the seed who will save all the nations. I believe you. Oh, would you save my son Ishmael too? If you're mighty to save, save him. Oh, that Ishmael would stand before you. Look at verse, look again at Genesis 17. And look down at verse 20. Oh, sorry, verse 19. Wait, verse 18 and then in verse 19. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Abraham is being a good father here. What father doesn't plead with the Lord to save their children? Fathers, it's impossible for you to save your kids. You can be a good dad. You can be loving. You can be kind. You can hug them. You can bring them to church morning and evening on the Lord's Day. You can, you can read the Bible and have family worship with them every day. You can do all of that stuff, be a good model, and it's still impossible for you to save them. So you pray to the Lord to save them. God is mighty to save. You plead with the Lord to save them. I don't care how old your children now are and whether they've wandered as far from the Lord as it looks like they could possibly be, the Lord is mighty to save. So you ask God to save them. You trust him to save them. Who doesn't want their children to walk in the truth? Abraham is trusting in the coming Christ. He's struck with awe and wonder at God's saving power and promise to send the Messiah through him and Sarah. And so he's saying, save him. Save Ishmael too. Abraham is so struck by the saving power and promise of God to send the Messiah through him and Sarah. His laughter may actually be what Jesus was referring to when Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Fourth, God clarifies that Isaac is the seed of the woman who will bless the nations. God clarifies that Isaac is the seed of the woman who will bless the nations. Look at verses 19 through 21. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his his name Isaac. 
I will, bless, I will establish my covenant with him. That's cause it to stand. That doesn't mean start a new covenant. That means make good on my covenant word with him. As an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. I'm going to bless him in all sorts of earthly senses. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. In other words, Abraham has rightly cared for and prayed for Isaac, yet the Lord points out that he is not the chosen son. The Lord answers, I'm going to cause my covenant to stand with Isaac. In other words, Isaac is the elect son. He's the chosen seed. The seed of the woman will come through him. The Lord will bless Ishmael and Abraham in that he'll become a nation with 12 princes that come from him, but he will not be saved because he is not elect. He's not the one whom the Lord chose to save. Abraham has no control over that. We have no control over that. Isaac and Ishmael have no control over that. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans 9, 6 and following. Abundantly clear. The Lord saves whom he will. He said, doesn't seem fair. Paul's response to you is, so have you ever seen a, a potter who makes a clay pot? You ever seen one? He's got the pot on the spinning wheel. He shapes the pot into what he wants it to be. Could you imagine the absurdity of the pot looking up at him saying, I'd rather be a dish than a bowl. Stupid. It's not fair. I like, the- okay. Paul's response is basically, can the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? No, that's absurd. No control over that. If you think it's unjust, Paul basically says, stop your mouth. You're not God. You're not God. He does all his holy will. He's never wrong. Never wrong. You will not get to heaven and say, I think it's unfair. In fact, you won't get to heaven initially and say anything because your mouth will be stopped by the holiness of God. The only thing that will come from then is thank God for Jesus. Fifth, Abraham responds immediately with obedience. Look at verses 22 to 27. And I'm just going to note two things and conclude. When he had finished talking with him, verse 22, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. I want you to note two emphases here in the circumcision ceremony. First, Abraham obeys God. He does everything God commands him to do. That's part of the reason for the repetition of the language of everybody who's being circumcised, because that's exactly what God said to do earlier in Genesis. He obeys him exactly in accord with his word. Second, the note there, Abraham obeys God twice, you see, in verse 23 and verse 26, that very day. That is not unimportant language. Don't just read over that quickly. We see that language, that very day, he did whatever the Lord said, or they did whatever the Lord said, in two other occasions in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and um, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Pentateuch, we see this two other times. Do you know what they are? Keep your hand at Genesis 17. Look back at Genesis 7. Genesis 7. And look at verse 13. On the very same day, on that very day, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three, the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark 
they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Again, a repeat of all the language of who's to go in the ark is given with the phrase, they did as the Lord commanded them that very day. Now, go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. This is even clearer in Hebrew, by the way, but we're just going to look at it in English because it would be unfruitful for me to turn to you there in Hebrew. Exodus chapter 12. You guys remember this? This is the Passover and the Exodus, Israel leaving Egypt. Look at verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, just as God had predicted in Genesis 15, prophesied. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord, do you see that? On that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now go down to verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, by their hosts. In both of these cases, you see men responding with obedient obedience to God's great saving acts. As God commanded Noah to get on the ark, to be saved from his wrath, and Noah obeyed that very day, and as God commanded Israel to depart from Egypt and the Exodus to be saved, and Israel obeyed that very day, so the Lord commanded Abraham to circumcise himself and his household, pointing to the salvation that's coming in the circumcision of Christ at the cross, in his atoning work, and Abraham obeyed the Lord that very day. In all these scenes, God is mighty to save. This son who will come through Isaac, he is the greater ark who saves us from the flood waters of God's judgment. He is the one who will lead the greater exodus from death to resurrection, life in heaven. And so in this circumcision ceremony, Abraham's obedience, like Noah before him and Israel after him is Abraham obeying the command to believe the gospel. He is obediently running to Christ for salvation. I will save you. I'm changing your name and Sarah's name. I'm sending the seed of the woman through, through you two. I will be your God. You will be my people. Circumcise yourselves to mark this off on the male member on the eighth day pointing to the coming Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And Abraham heard this word, and that very day he circumcised himself and his whole household because he believed in the Christ. Here's the question. Are you obeying the gospel? Are you believing in Christ? Do you confess your sin Do you know that you're a sinner and that apart from God's grace, you're rightly deserving his judgment? Do you believe that Jesus lived righteously in your place, paid your penalty at the cross, rose from the dead, conquering the grave from you, and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns even now? Do you trust that God is mighty to save you? Even you. Do you trust sovereign grace? That God is mighty to save people you think are impossible to save. It's a little bit arrogant, isn't it? When we think, that guy, that crusty old uncle I have, that's never going to happen. But then somehow we think, but I'm saved. That's reasonable. Does that carry over to you for boldness in evangelism and missions? 
Do you believe God is mighty to save your family and friends and coworkers and neighbors even as he saved you? Do you believe that he's able to save the unreached peoples of the earth? Do you believe he's able to save your governor? Do you pray like you are? Believing that. I know we can look around and everything can seem bleak. It can seem impossible that God will save our parents or our adult child or our long-term friend or a political leader we think is not good. But I exhort you to open your mouth about Jesus and trust that God is mighty to save. He saves the proclamation of the gospel. Let me leave you with Calvin's comment regarding this. He says this, Today when God wants his gospel to be preached throughout the world, so the world may be restored from death to life, he seems to ask for the impossible. We see how we meet resistance. Satan works against us, so that all roads are closed by the rulers themselves. Yet each man must carry out his duty without yielding to any impediment. In the end, our efforts will not fail. They will be successful, even though this is not apparent now. Believe that? May not be apparent now. But in the end, our efforts will be successful. Think California, it's gone. There's no hope for this state anymore. We these little tiny churches trying to preach the gospel to a state that is overwhelmingly given over to wickedness. What hope is there? It may seem impossible to you, but God is mighty to save. God is mighty to save. It may not seem apparent now, but God will have the victory. The effort will be successful. So pray, plead with God, and open your mouth and speak about Jesus. Trust him to save those whom he will. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for Christ, the salvation that we know in him. And we pray that you would work in us in such a way that we would be thankful for the grace that we have. We would be thankful for the privilege that we have to speak about Christ to others. We pray that you would work powerfully through us so that we would boldly and graciously speak about him and that we pray that you'd be pleased to save many. We pray for our friends and our family members and our coworkers and our neighbors who seem lost in sin. We pray that you would save them. Pray for our children. We pray that you would use the means of grace you've given us, reading the Bible and praying, raising them in the fear and admission of the Lord to save them. We know it requires you to do the work. We pray for ourselves. Might you grow us in saving faith. Grow us in grace so that more and more we long for Christ and not for the things of this world. That more and more we are humbled that you would save even us. And that if you can save us, you can save anyone. May we trust you that end. In Jesus' name, amen.